the downtown farmer's market didn't do so great. This week, council approves two more towers and denies zero towers and chalks absolutely no one. Plus, we'll have an update on the downtown farmer's market and tell you about a wildlife underpass you probably haven't heard of. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 55. We're in the throes of a climate emergency. As this episode is released, many of you are probably at the climate strike as it drops noon on Friday. That's right. Listen to it in one ear while chanting Greta's wondrous name. She's in Montreal, and the only federal leader not attending the climate strike there is Andrew Scheer. Apropos of nothing, of course, we'll jump (laughs) right into the rapid fire segment. There was confusion at the end of this week's AHS board meeting when after Stephen Mandel voted to adjourn, one board member asked, wait, is he supposed to be here? After much discussion and comparing of records, it was discovered that no, in fact, Stephen Mandel was not previously on the AHS board, but he was then permitted to stay for the remainder of the term. Dubbed the Mandel Effect, this is a common Alberta phenomenon where a 70-something white dude without qualifications begins governing health in Alberta and everyone collectively forgets to ask why. The last time the Mandel effect was observed, someone without a seat as MLA was appointed health minister. The, quote, science was not settled, end quote, this week on which public school trustee is a knob. While the board voted 6-1 against Sherry Adams, an alleged knob, she pointed to the one vote against hers as a clear example of lack of consensus on who really is the knob here. After the meeting, she doubled down on her position in a Facebook post, asserting that a full 16% of trustees voted that she wasn't a knob. So that definitely warrants a second look. And hey, 16% is more than the 3% of papers that don't fault humans for climate change. So maybe we need to take another look at that whole climate change fiasco. Connor McDavid has returned to play his first game after a knee injury put him on the bench at the end of last season. This represents sweet, sweet relief for the remaining Oilers, who had become right sick of McDavid saying, I used to be a hockey player like you, and then I took a goalpost to the knee. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, and we'd like to tell you about the ECF and the Well-Endowed Podcast, which you've heard of before. The Well-Endowed Podcast is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Monking and produced by Lisa Pruden. It explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. One of the recent episodes featured Councillor Aaron Paquette, and they said that Aaron tells us about why you shouldn't hide your talent in a drawer. The difference between challenges and trauma and the magic power of words. I wanted to throw specifically to this episode and Aaron's commentary before I slag on him later in the episode for his votes at council. Love you, Aaron. You can find that podcast and subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. So, Mac, let's get right on to slagging Aaron Paquette with yeah, the first why not? topic of the day. So... We have more towers that got approved downtown, which is just like the modus operandi for our city council. It's public hearing every two weeks. There's a tower that comes up and they vote yes. Yeah, we have, I think, actually voted no to one once. Maybe. But, you know, it's a needle in a haystack. We wouldn't be able to find that one. (laughs) What was on the table this week? There were two towers in particular that got a lot of attention this week. The first is the one you've probably heard about. It's called 9955 Jasper. This is the mixed-use building that was proposed for the park that is privately owned and located right outside the Hotel McDonald on Jasper Avenue. And so this 
tower is going to be a, a big, tall tower that some people are concerned will impact, you know, the the view of the skyline or the view of the sight lines of the Hotel McDonald. And, you know, you had an interesting take on sort of what kind of revisionist history that might be. Yeah. So we have this park right now in front of the Hotel McDonald that is barely a park. It's a couple paths with an LRT entrance. Which people love to just bounce their skateboard off all of the time. That's what I see happening there. Yeah, sure. And like public parks are cool, good to have. But that's not a public park. Right. That's a private park. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but a private developer owns that park and he's just let it sit there. It could have been a gravel parking lot, I assume. And then People would be raising hell for why we have an ugly thing in the middle of our city. But instead, the developer was just like a really good steward of the city and made a nice thing for everyone to enjoy while his lot sat vacant for 20 years. Set a good example. We, as a city and as some of the members of council in their commentary, decided it's appropriate to punish that developer and make sure they can never do anything valuable with that property. So right now, that property is zoned for big boxy towers. They could have a massive, not as tall, but definitely much wider sight blocking ugly blob on that lot that blocks everything. And they could build that tomorrow. No approvals required. I wonder what that would look like. Uh... You don't have to wonder, because this is the revisionist history part. It used to be there. Yeah, you posted this photo inside the show notes, and I was like, really? That is that real? Yeah. Uh, and so we did a bit of homework, and it's real. Yeah, so the Hotel McDonald used to have an annex. They needed extra rooms, so they built a 16-story, 300-bedroom addition, which is basically a brutalist blob and it extends that entire park it completely blocks out the hotel mcdonald it's ugly af it is not a good building on wikipedia they call it the hotel mcdonald and the box it came in that's really what it does look (laughs) like which is a very clever pun all things considered but this used to exist on the lot yeah it was demolished in 1986 this is a little before our time this is why we don't actually yeah i was i wasn't born there so i've never seen it in person But that's how we got that park is we sized down and we just left the park vacant. And when this was demolished, the Hotel McDonald was in dire straits. It had shut down actually in 1983, a few years before they demolished this annex. So, And the wrecking ball was actually slated to hit the Hotel McDonald subsequently after that. Right. And it was then designated Edmonton's first municipal heritage resource, which is protected. And so it was protected and they didn't put a wrecking ball to it. And eventually new ownership, new development got in and the Hotel McDonald became what we know it to be today. But it was very close to being demolished. And part of that was getting rid of the ugly box it came in. So the lot obviously was just empty because they couldn't afford to do anything with it. But it was always in the back of the mind that, like, the developer owns this lot and something will be coming eventually. And it was zoned to allow something to be built there. Absolutely. And out of the grace of their hearts, the developers said, let's do something that's beautiful for the urban form, has public access with a, like, little public park and doesn't block sightlines to Hotel McDonald in the best way possible. Everyone sort of raised hell about it. And I am not empathetic with anyone complaining about this development. This should absolutely go forward. And it is a phenomenal design. So the developer here is Great Golf, and they've not yet decided how tall it's going to be or what kind of 
Retail is going to be in the podium, but they have already committed to maintaining a public plaza and having a family-friendly park area between the hotel and the building. Um, as you say, the sight lines are going to be much, much better because this is a taller but much, much skinnier uh, tower than what could have been built. So there's a lot to like about this. I agree. I think this will be a positive thing for downtown. Um, the mayor talked about how you know this will have a positive impact on the skyline. It'll fill it in a little bit and maybe bring some commercial activity to that really important corner. Now, we've talked before on the show about how many empty commercial bays there are downtown, so that definitely remains to be seen. Uh, but the tower itself, I think, will be a positive thing for, as you say, such a central part of our, our downtown. One thing I wanted to mention on this, and this is where we get into slagging Aaron Paquette, who really likes to weave words in ways that appear to mean something but maybe don't. And he tweeted... Quote, we will lose the sunlight over the Remembrance Day Cenotaph precisely on November 11th at 11 a.m., placing it in shadow at the moment of remembrance. Yeah, I can appreciate what he's saying. It's there. a consideration, I guess. We're in a downtown in a city and this could be blocked anyway. I get that this is a special place for remembrance and that is a special day. Right. But also shadows don't prevent remembrance and this seems very much like an appeal to emotion. We have rules limiting what can be covered by shadows. And there is no bylaw saying cenotaphs cannot have shadows on them. There you go. <laughs> so in the same breath as he's saying, you know, we have rules and we need to be able to follow these rules and these development strategies and listen to our city planners. He's also saying, yeah, but I invented this other rule over here. So let's make sure to focus on that. Or maybe just grasping at some reason to not approve this, I suppose. Yeah, um, because you do have to grasp. It's a very nice building. There was another interesting fact you noticed that might be a benefit of doing this. Yeah, the other thing that caught my eye is that, I don't know if this is an official name or not, but that park is referred to as Frank Oliver Park. Frank Oliver, for people who aren't aware, sucked. <laughs> <laughs> very uh, colored history. And so there's been a push from some members of the community to, you know, get rid of things that recognize him uh, with his name. And so this is one less thing in the city that will carry the Frank Oliver name. That's a win for me. Let's move over to the other tower. And yeah. I've specifically separated this because a lot of the news stories and the discussion have been conflating the two towers. And they're both very different in location, what they're trying to do, and their pros and cons. They just happen to come up at the same time. Absolutely. So council voted 9 to 3 for that 9955 Jasper. They voted 11 to 1 to approve the second tower, Paquette being the only councillor who voted no. Interesting um, note on those votes, the Hotel McDonald yeah. adjacent tower, that was recommended by city planners. That's right. Three votes against. This new one that we're about to discuss, that only had a single vote against, it was not recommended by city planners. That's a good point. I go through every uh, proposal that comes before public hearing for the council roundup. I'm and, so sorry. And there are very, 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 very few that are not recommended for approval. So good point on that. 11 to 1. Councillor Paquette, the only one who was opposed, he said, as you know, you kind of alluded to, that it, you know, we have rules for a reason. He thought this might be the start of a domino effect to stretch past planning guidelines. Like, now the we're starting the domino effect. Fallen. Yeah, that was a bit confusing to me. This is a tower on 103rd Avenue and 104th Street. It is, as you pointed out to me, just outside 
the heritage area that is 104th. The reason that administration, that the planning department did not recommend this is because the public interface on 103rd didn't match the character of the other buildings. There's not this nice podium and setback and things that most of the other buildings have been forced to have. And so they thought there was room to improve that. Interestingly, they also specifically brought up a safety concern, which is that because it doesn't have a podium, balconies are directly over the sidewalk and falling barbecues could hit pedestrians. I don't know how real of a concern that is. Uh, We did actually hear at council, the mayor sort of jokingly say there was a pretty famous video in Toronto where a lady on her balcony threw some stuff off. Sure. Yeah. And he said, that's a Toronto problem. We're not having that in Edmonton. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know that zoning is the correct tool to protect pedestrians' heads. But it was interesting that that came up because that was the first time I've ever heard that debated at council. The fact that there was balconies over the street, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that is really interesting. It hasn't come up that I'm aware of. Um. So you had thoughts on this tower. So let's let's let you get in there first. Well, I, I mean, I live in the area and I really appreciate the way the area feels as a pedestrian, as somebody walking down the street, that it matches the character of these old brick warehouses that are some of the oldest buildings in our city and that the towers are there, but they're not feeling like they're looming over you. And, you know, there's a certain of amount of, you know, friendliness to the pedestrian that comes from that. So I, I guess I'm just surprised that it was 11 to 1. You know, um, not at all surprised that council voted to approve a tower, just that there wasn't a little bit more support for that, you know, heritage style of zoning, or at least, you know, asking them to go back and rework it a little bit. Yeah, I am interested at what point we do hit saturation, because we have approved a lot of downtown towers, and we don't seem to be tapering off. No, and there's still a lot of parking lots. Th- that is a true fact. <laughs> and in fact, this week, many of the floors in the Stantec building got sold off for $500 million. The commercial ones, yeah. Yeah, and those profits, they were said to be reinvested in the ICE district for phase two, because phase one of ICE district is basically almost complete. The discussion around, we are still investing in this downtown hard, and I'm interested to see where it goes. And perhaps that is where council is coming from here. That's true. There is so much investment and they don't want to be judicious and then stop the snowball. Because if they signal that they're not amenable to development, maybe development stops being amenable to downtown. Um, But we'll move on to everyone's favorite topic, calcium chloride. And we don't actually have a ton to say because Ken got kicked again. Yeah, it feels like it's been a couple of episodes, so therefore we need to talk about it. But this was (laughs) supposed to come up before council, and they had three hours of debate about it on Tuesday and then ran out of time and said, we're going to kick this down the road. So actually next week's urban planning committee meeting has been canceled. They didn't have any agenda items, and they've called a special council meeting essentially to try to deal with this issue. Did you listen to the council debate at all? I did not. Uh, I didn't listen to much either. I don't, I, I sort of hesitate to call it a debate <laughs> because it is bloviating without facts. There and you go. In Cartmel's case, bloviating about not having facts. Yeah, he said, quote, there's a lot of data offered, but like I said, that data is inconsistent, it's contradictory, and it's incomplete, end quote. This is the story of calcium chloride. So we've had, at this point, two global news gotcha moments where they get a leaked or foiped memo that gives information about calcium chloride. Last year, it was, you know, that calcium chloride damaged concrete in a particular way that wasn't shared with city council. 
This week, through FOIP requests, Global News got information from a November 29th, 2018 EPCOR environmental manager who said that the results of the concentrations of chemicals in the calcium chloride solution that the city is deploying actually exceeds our maximum allowable amounts in our bylaws. We are, this is their words, spraying hazardous waste. Um, <laughs> really? It's as hazardous as it, it uses wow. the words hazardous wastes. Nice. Calcium chloride stock dropped a little bit this week. But I think it's important to reiterate that calcium chloride isn't actually a problem in my view of the situation. Okay. As so, someone who's paid attention. As someone who's paid attention, there's a lot of misinformation on both sides. And I'm one of the last ones to defend the calcium chloride pilot because we got lobbied and yeah. Troy doesn't react positively to lobbying. But, and that's a huge but, the province has used calcium chloride on the Henday forever. And it was very funny. Andrew Knack posted on his Facebook page, you know, I'm interested in getting your feedback on calcium chloride. Yeah. And one of the comments on the thread was, just find out whatever the province uses on the Henday and use that instead of whatever the city's doing. <laughs> and Andrew Knack's Amazing. Like, well, they use calcium chloride and they have since the Henday was built. Right. Everyone's talking about rust and damage, and it's just because we used a lot of salt in the past two years. That is the reason. Calcium chloride could have been a contributor, absolutely, mm -hmm. but calcium chloride occurred in a massive increase of salt usage. Meanwhile, we're trying to decrease the amount of sand we use because sand becomes very ineffective after just a few hours once it's blown off the road and it's a huge spring cleaning nightmare. We got to store it somewhere and all the rest of it. So there's... So many problems associated with our winter road clearing. And the point of this pilot is to try new things. I think we can all agree that we haven't found exactly what we should be doing permanently, but we have demonized calcium chloride as a byproduct of this period of change, and that's a problem. And the demonization doesn't come just from constituents who don't know any better. It's also coming from our counselors. Again, I'm going to single out Councillor Paquette, who's always been against calcium chloride because of the billions of damage is it offloads onto private owners. Yep. Citation needed. Yeah. Um, Where's the fact? I am not denying that there were damages to personal property. I am skeptical that calcium chloride was the sole cause and that calcium chloride should accept the blame and a little bit disappointed that we have our elected officials assigning the blame, as Councillor Cartmel puts it, without consistent and clear data. The only other thing I would mention on this that I think is quite interesting is that all administration is asking for is that they'd be directed to amend the snow and ice control policy to prioritize bare pavement using a full variety of control methods. Like they're not asking specifically for any one thing. They just want to be able to amend it to allow them to use the right tool for the job in the right place. Yes. And council wants to get elected in 2021. <laughs> so they're saying no to calcium chloride. Right. The last thing I'll say is that when we de-emphasized calcium chloride use last winter because it was politically hot topic, biking sucked. Right. Um, the first year we were using it, the bike lanes were phenomenal because of the calcium chloride solution. Yeah, my train got a little orange. But I didn't fall, which I'm calling a win. That's a much better thing. 
the story does get very different on arterial roadways, but that's another thing that's been lost in this whole discussion is we have sidewalks and bike lanes and things that are not cars. It's very hard in Edmonton to imagine not cars, <laughs> right? but it does exist. And we should think about that. Let's go closer to your home. Jump back over to 104th Street, where the farmer's market always happens, and it's always going to be on 104th Street, right? That's or right. Always. move? Uh, well, who knows? <laughs> Nobody knows. Uh, Leanne Falder, who took over the column for Elise Stolte, is still, you know, writing a bit close to home. She wrote about the fringe and theater. She's writing about food, but, you know, like Elise, she'll, she'll get there, I think. Uh, this week, her column was all about the downtown farmer's market conundrum, as the headline put it. And she highlighted that they've had a very difficult season and they have an uncertain future. So she talks about how she went on a recent glorious fall Saturday, always one of her happy places, and found it surprisingly quiet. And I live on the street. I overlook the market on my balcony. We see it every Saturday. We go every Saturday. And I will agree that it has seemed very quiet this year at some at some times. And that's partly maybe because, you know, it's been a little wet. If you're a hardcore market goer like us, that doesn't matter. You're going to go buy your veggies. But for the average person who just wants to come and have a good experience, I can see how that deters you. We did see K-Days blame the weather for their record low attendance. Yep. The other reason that has been cited, and she mentioned this in the column, is maybe the economy. And I say that's a bad excuse because I walk around near Roger's Place just down the block from my home. And it's like there's a law that's been passed that you have to wear an Oilers jersey to go to an Oilers game. And not only that, was it last week they introduced the third jersey or the week before? And the very next day, there were people going to preseason games wearing that jersey. Those things cost hundreds of dollars. And also, farmers markets are full of liberal yuppies who, (laughs) you know, they're going to spend all their money at the farmers market and then can't afford homes. So... So economy, not the reason the market is suffering. She does get to the real reason, I think. She says, plus the public was confused about the 104 Street location. You don't say. Yeah, because as you know, we've talked about this before, they were going to move over to the quarters and then at the last minute they decided they were going to stay on 104 Street and they were going to do both. Saturdays on 104, Sundays at the quarters, until the fall when the new building was supposed to be ready. They are still planning to move back to the quarters for the winter, so to their new apparently permanent home. Although, if you've seen any pictures of it recently, we're not sure how that's going to work. Maybe just some fold-up tables inside for now. Um, But yeah, I think that is the real reason here. They really shot themselves in the foot, I think, by creating so much confusion about where the market was going to be and not committing, going all in on the new location and really making that the well-known destination. So Leanne gets to this in the column. She says, people just rip off the Band-Aid, get moving. It's time to embrace the quarters. And I was reading this and I was like, yes, yes, this is what we need to do. And then she continues. (laughs) And she said, now's the time for City Hall to step in and make a meaningful commitment to downtown farmers market vendors, pairing the move to the quarters with a promise that there will be no farmers market on 104th Street. No, no. (laughs) So let's unpack that a little bit. Essentially, what she's saying is capitulate to the farmers market, because what the farmers market is saying is if we move to the quarters and someone else swoops in and sets up on 104th Street, they're going to eat our lunch. And to that, I say, yep. Actually, maybe that's I don't know that they're going to eat their lunch as bad as you think they're going to eat your lunch. But there's going to be a lot of people who are confused about where the market is because of you. And they'll just show up and see a market and maybe buy some stuff. So I can appreciate that desire. On the other hand, 
The reason the downtown farmer's market is so incredible for many people there, and I'm sure you can empathize with this, is what's the closest grocery store to your house? The Savon on 109th Street. And is there anything else? No, you've got to walk like 20 blocks. 7-Eleven or something? Yeah. There's a dearth of grocery stores downtown, and part of it is with the Sobeys, Safeway, and restrictive covenants on leased properties. Grocery stores can't open in some locations because of exactly this same anti-competitive, right? we don't want someone to move into our old place and eat our lunch. To suggest that we should do that with a farmer's market after the farmer's market is solving this problem created by a grocery store desert, that seems a little baffling to me. And let's not forget that the farmer's market is getting an incredible deal from the city for the new building. The city is the lessee on that building and they are subleasing to the market at a dollar a year. So they're already getting help from the city. I don't think that the farmer's market, they clearly think that they own 104th Street and I don't think that they should. They have no more right to be there than anyone else. The 104th Street committee who is the one that started talking about maybe we should do a market if they move, it's well within their rights to want to activate that street. And whether they do a market or not should be of no concern to the farmer's market. Like they have no ownership over that. In fact, over the years, they've been actively combative with people who either live or work on that street, feeling like, you know, they don't actually need to be a good member of the community. So I have no sympathy for them on this. They're really sort of like the ex that is like, I'm moving on, but you can't date anyone. Right. And they're stalking that 104th Street Facebook. Great column up until the, the end. The very end. It's like, couldn't deliver on that conclusion. And I would submit this is just based on my interactions with the vendors and my experiences downtown. That's probably because they did a very poor job of treating their customers, the vendors, with any sort of respect or clear communication. Most of the vendors have had no idea what's been going on all summer long, just like um, consumers have had no idea where to go. So, you know, I think that's probably the reason that some of the vendors are a little hesitant to want to jump on to this plan because it doesn't even seem like the market is committed to their own plan. If you're interested in finding out the whole history of this saga, you can tune into episode 40, Corn Fusion with the 104 Street Market Location. I want to get to a last topic that you put in the notes and I follow City Council. I didn't hear of it. You talked about Orem Energy Park and a wildlife underpass. What's going on there? I put this in here because I came across uh, the mayor's tweet about this and I thought, wow, this is interesting. I didn't really know anything about this, just like you. So I started to look at it. So essentially what happened this week is we cut the ribbon on a road extension for the Orem Road. So this is a road that connects 9th Street to 17th Street. This is in the far northeast It's a six-lane highway, essentially, that connects up to the Anthony Henday Drive and Highway 21. Uh, So the Orem Energy Park is this um, industrial area. It's mainly industrial businesses, although they may have plans to do some other things. And this road extension cost about $40 million, just over $40 million, and it came entirely from City of Edmonton coffers. And so the mayor tweeted, This $40 million investment by council will help us grow our regional prosperity by keeping goods, services, and people moving, while also helping us to better compete for investment. And I, my reaction to this story was, okay, I get that. Like, we're trying to grow the region, and, you know, there's some industrial stuff up there that could be, you know, big business for us. But then it seemed like it was wrapped up in this wildlife overpass or underpass. Like, that is the thing that people would talk about and sort of ignore the fact that, We just declared a climate emergency. And we built a six-lane highway. Right. 
there were two things that caught me off guard here. One is the location. I'm like, isn't that in Fort Saskatchewan? That's Why pretty far up Why is the city there. of Edmonton paying for this? And in fact, the point of this roadway is it connects two provincial highways, but the city is paying for all of it. Yeah. Which is an interesting um, sort of like nuance of provincial highways. That's the way it works. Yeah. Off ramps for the Anthony Henday, they're all paid for by the city of Edmonton. That's right. So you can get on that highway, but if the city doesn't pay, you can't get off. But there was a wildlife underpass that was this bow right. around it. So what what was up with the wildlife underpass? So underneath this bridge, this roadway, is this Orem Wildlife Crossing, as they've called it. It connects, uh, or it's a safe underpass for wildlife that goes along Clover Bark Creek and Ravine. So it's 67 meters long, 22 meters wide. You've maybe seen these similarly when you're going to, I think it's Jasper, you get to see some of these wildlife overpasses. You know, the whole idea here is to allow wildlife to move safely and flow through the site. There's been deer and moose and all kinds of animals over there. So, I mean, this is a good thing, right? It's unequivocally a good thing when we're building a huge road there. But it just sort of felt like, you know, this is the thing that people will latch on to. And that's a feel good aspect to it. So we won't criticize it too much. Well, and it was very interesting when I started looking at some of the pressers for this. It was less about the road and more like, exactly. look at this wonderful wildlife underpass we built. Yeah. And sort of burying the lead there because you only have to build the wildlife underpass because you installed a highway over top of it. Exactly. The headline in Global News was Northeast Edmonton Roadway Expansion Includes Underpass for Wildlife. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to be so obtuse to say we declared a climate emergency. So the ribbon cutting on the 40 million road we already bought has to be canceled right but hopefully we don't have any more of these roads being built under our climate emergency edmonton or maybe we make an acknowledgement of the fact when we're talking about the ribbon cutting and and the road that we've just built this is a thing that gets cars moving places faster to prop up an energy industry right disproportionately over absolutely and there are massive climate change implications there we should absolutely be supporting albertan businesses and making sure our economy is growing in the city with a strong caveat that like we don't destroy the planet there Um, you go we're gonna move on to growing our podcast's local economy by playing an ad unit b is a multi-company co-working space focused on helping people pursue their passions and making edmonton its creative best you can join a tight-knit group of freelancers startups and established organizations all dedicated to getting things done Unit B is located in the historic McKinney building on 104th Street, right across from my house. It's close to everything downtown, including Bay LRT Station. So you can book a tour and learn more at unitb.ca. You operate out of Unit B when you do some taproot work. That's right. Making roundups and stuff. But there's a new sort of incubator, accelerator that you're operating out of. You're still working in Unit B. But you're part of ATBX now. That's right. We're also going to be working out of Work Nicer for at least a day a week because they're a partner with ATB Financial for ATBX, which we've talked about on the show through an ad in the past. This is a business accelerator. So there's no equity or money or pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. It's an 11-week program where a select group of companies get to learn new business skills and help try to grow their businesses to the next level. And so we're really excited that Taproot was selected as one of the 20 Edmonton businesses. We're told out of, you know, a couple of hundred applicants from across the province. So that's a, a good feather in our cap. And we know there's a lot of work ahead, but we're excited to learn some new skills and, and continue to grow Taproot. And the best way that Taproot can grow is by becoming a member. So you can head on over to taprootedmonton.ca and subscribe. And your money is going to accelerate us right into the future. There you go. 
Uh, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.